Hello and welcome to Solutions. This is the fourth episode of the second series of podcasts for solution-focused hypnotherapists. And I'm Cathy Eland. Well, I'm Trevor Edwards, and we're both experienced solution-focused hypnotherapists. And today we're looking at the primitive brain or the primitive emotional brain. Shall we start with a definition of what we're talking about? Actually, I thought we'd start by quickly looking at brain areas, if that's all right. Oh, go on then, Trevor. Different parts of our brain developed over time to help our ancestors function better in the environment in which they lived. Interestingly, it seems that all mammals and birds and reptiles have the same brain areas. It's just that some areas are bigger in some animals, and that reflects the importance of those areas in adapting an animal for its ecological niche. So our brainstem is the most primitive part of our brain, and that keeps all our important bits working without us needing to think about it. Things like our heart beating, our lungs breathing, our GI tract squeezing food through it, what they call peristalsis. It's where the reticular activating system can be found. That's the bit which deletes all those messages entering the brain that we don't need to deal with. What we call our primitive brain can be found in reptiles, birds and mammals, and its size and importance is different in different species. It's where you find the thalamus, the hypothalamus, the amygdala, and hippocampi. Remember, we have two of those last two items, one in each hemisphere of the brain. The hypothalamus allows us to regulate everything going on in the body, which is important for homeostasis in warm-blooded animals. The amygdala experience emotions, particularly fear, which increased our chances of survival. It's worth remembering that the amygdala are connected to brain circuits that spread throughout the brain. It's not just a single unit working in isolation. The function of the primitive brain can be summarized as the four Fs. So that's fighting, fleeing, feeding, and the one about reproductive behavior. Anyway, some people think of it as our inner chip. In fact, it's actually very valuable. And lastly, then, the great apes, whales and dolphins developed large intellectual brains, the huge cerebral cortex, allowing them to recognize relationships in society and make logical decisions, problem solve, maintain attention and control those primitive emotions. It also gave us a way to analyse what had happened so we could do things better next time. Although, of course, we all know some people use it just to brood. It houses the executive function, which can overrule that chimp-like primitive brain. Interesting. And it's estimated that the human brain has around 128 million neurons plus 69 million glial cells, and the neurons connect to each other across synapses. And it's fair to say, though, that birds and reptiles have much the same areas of the brain as humans. It's just that some of these areas are not so well developed. And it's these developments usually associated with an increase in size or subdividing into different parts that have been associated with changes in behavior and thinking ability. Basal ganglia are also associated with the primitive brain. And these, and there are lots of ganglia in different areas of the brain, are associated with habits. 
it's thought basal ganglia are where habits are stored and quickly accessed. In fact, a Duke University researcher in 2006 found that more than 40% of the actions people perform each day weren't actually decision-driven, but were habits. Mm. The other vital piece of information that we need to know is how much energy the brain uses. In fact, it uses a fifth of all the oxygen used by the body, which is a lot. It also uses about a quarter of a person's energy intake. So our highly efficient body tries to reduce the energy demands of the brain. How can it do that? Well, it turns off as much thinking as possible. So you're saying our brain is like a 1950s dad going around the house and turning off all the electrical appliances that have been left on? Uh, I'm saying our brain is an amazing eco-warrior, being as green a consumer as it can be by going around the body, turning off unused appliances. And people create habits very quickly. And then you simply repeat those habits. It saves thinking which shoe to put on first, for example. Your hand reaches out for the alarm clock without you needing to think about the clock's location. Well, as long as you always put it in the same place. And the brain's coordination center for habits is a striatum. It is connected to the prefrontal cortex and the midbrain. The midbrain provides input from dopamine-containing neurons. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter associated with creating positive feelings related to rewards and events of emotional significance. Once a habit is stored, the infralimbic cortex causes a person to carry out the habit when they are triggered by a particular cue, situation or event. Okay, so if I were to gently throw a ball towards you now, you'd probably be able to catch it. And it yeah. wouldn't be your intellectual brain calculating the parabolic flight of the ball that helps you. It would be a ball-catching rule of thumb or heuristic that you developed when you were a child. And there are loads of these heuristics that we use all the time to make life easier and to use up less oxygen and glucose in the brain. And your primitive brain isn't just there to protect you at the first sight of a polar bear. It's working for you pretty much all the time. It's only when you have to make a hard decision that you use all that energy in your intellectual brain. And, of course, it's your intellectual brain that decides to stop you reaching for a second tasty donut because it may not fit with your weight loss plans. In fact, sometimes using your primitive brain can be better than using your intellectual brain. Have you ever had a client with a sporting problem? Perhaps they have yips or dartitis or any number of similar choking conditions. The problem for them is that their primitive brain is perfectly capable of throwing the dart accurately or making that gold swing. But the intellectual brain keeps cutting in and wants to check everything is okay it starts to think about the best way to swing that club, which prevents your primitive brain accessing those perfectly honed habits and heuristics. That's why we need to get clients to sing or fill up their thinking brain with something else. So the primitive brain can get on with doing its job of playing the sport and avoid this paralysis by analysis.
Okay. And just to note, it's the cerebellum, the bit of the brain with 75% of our neurons in, which is responsible for the fine motor skills that you use when performing some sports. Yeah, similarly, have you ever tried to teach a family member how to drive? Your primitive brain is such an expert driver that it moves your hands and your feet without you needing to consciously think about it. And that's where the trouble starts. Your learner driver can't plug their primitive brain into yours and download the information. They need you to tell them what to do. You need to verbalise something that you haven't needed to verbalise for a very long time. It's hard and it's slow. And by the time you realise that you've missed some important information, you're probably already shouting at them for some driving mistake they just made. And in a nutshell, our primitive brain is involved in processing and regulating emotions, sexual arousal and memory. It plays an important role in the body's response to stress and it processes the body's response to smells. And there are times when we're very stressed and the intellectual brain gradually gets cut off from the primitive brain. And so logical thought becomes almost impossible. Your body has gone into survival mode. Some people call this cognitive narrowing or amygdala hijack. So what's the problem with the primitive brain? How can we do see clients? What's gone wrong for them that hasn't for everyone else? And the answer is almost always stress. Our bodies are designed to undergo some stress. We're resilient. In fact, we even go to the gym to put our bodies under stress to build up our muscles and fitness levels. But our bodies aren't designed for long periods of stress. That's when the trouble starts. And sometimes it doesn't take much for that straw to break the camel's back and a person finds themselves suffering from anger, anxiety, or depression. And that's why our usual techniques of helping people to empty their stress bucket work so well. We're helping to reduce the amount of stress in their life. It doesn't mean that they no longer use their primitive brains and are firmly ensconced in their intellectual brain. Far from it. What it does mean is that they can continue to use their primitive brain for all those low energy consuming activities as before. It means that they can burn more energy by using their intellectual brain when they need to, like doing that maths exam or arranging the staff conference, etc. And importantly, it means that their primitive brain isn't trying to protect them in its own unique way. Mm. So don't treat the primitive brain as the villain of the piece and the intellectual brain as the hero. To be honest, this is a 2,000-year-old idea originated by Plato. The primitive brain is doing most of the heavy lifting for you throughout most of the day. And it's doing it in a way that isn't causing anyone any problems. It's the stress in your life that makes the primitive brain perform suboptimally in the modern world. It's very likely the activity led to a positive result in our distant ancestors, so stress is the real villain. Yeah, and what the primitive brain can't do is make logical decisions. It can't come up with a new way of behaving. Only your intellectual brain can do that. It can modify a behaviour depending on the rewards or punishments it gets. But we all know people who continue behaving in the same way and expect to get a different result. 
Isn't that Einstein's idea of insanity? Yes. However, for sports people, when they're in the zone, as it's called, they are thought to be operating optimally in their primitive brain. Interesting. But the primitive brain does have other drawbacks, doesn't it? And that's why we encourage people to make use of their cerebral cortex, to make logical decisions about their life and how they want to behave. The problem is that decisions made in the cerebral cortex can often be slow, whereas the primitive brain can react very quickly. Let's take a look at examples of primitive brain decisions. Leonard Malovino's book, Subliminal, takes a look at a host of psychology experiments that illustrate some surprising and quick decisions that subjects have made using their primitive brain. For example, he says that the stronger the threat is to a person feeling good about themselves, the greater the tendency to view reality through a distorted lens. And he illustrates this with examples such as Dutch Schultz, the mobster who thought he was a public benefactor, and O.J. Simpson, who continued to justify his behaviour in front of the sentencing judge. Or how do you get along with others? 100% of US high school seniors reckoned that they were average or above average. 60% put themselves in the top 10 and 25% reckoned they were in the top 1%. Similarly, 94% of college professors reckon they do above average work. Engineers, the military, doctors have all proved to have equally overinflated views of their performance. You'll not be surprised to learn we even overestimate our ability to resist overestimating of our own ability. <laughs> yeah. Motivated reasoning is the name given to finding evidence to fit our beliefs and to ignore evidence that doesn't. There's evidence to suggest that scientists will still hold on to beliefs even when all the evidence is contradictory, and their opinion of the work of their colleagues depends on how well their colleagues' conclusion fit their own beliefs. Okay, and our illusion of reality, our belief in our own innate superiority, might maintain the illusion of objectivity. We can only be so good and not any better, or evidence might interfere with our belief. The same applies to politics and football teams and much else. Yeah, evidence shows when interviewing candidates that we will make a choice and then look for evidence to justify our choice. Worse, evidence shows that this bias affects our memory When recalling school grades years afterwards, people are more likely to remember they got an A, about 89% of the time, to about 64% for Bs, 51% for Cs, and only 29% remember their D. Mm. And it seems that every client we see, in fact, everyone we meet, and that includes ourselves, is a living illusion. Every individual holds a positive illusion about themselves and their past. Yeah, we also have a bias towards traits similar to our own. In a study of marriages in three US states, people were more likely to marry people with the same surname. More Smiths married Smiths, more Johnsons married Johnsons, more Williams married Williams, more Jones married Jones, and more Browns married Browns than any other combination of these surnames. 
Wow. Uh, research also shows us that we're not very good at understanding our own feelings, but we do it with high confidence. <laughs> what affects how much we eat? Is it taste? The answer is no. It's how big a container it comes in. An experiment with popcorn involved people being given either tasty or stale popcorn and either large or small containers. People with large containers of stale popcorn ate lots of it. And menus that use flour modifiers, you know, slow roasted eggs drizzled onto a bed of crispy wine sort of thing. These help people to enjoy food more. Yes, people prefer food with adjectives. Using hard to read fonts in a recipe book makes people think the recipes are more complicated so they're less likely to try them. Yeah, and also what about shopping? You surely make sensible and reasoned decisions about purchases. Seemingly not. Put identical German and French wines for sale next to each other and play French-sounding background music and 77% of the wine sold is French. Play German background music and the reverse happens. In another experiment, four pairs of identical silk stockings had a scent added to them. People then chose the best one. And of course, without realising it, they chose the pair with the nicest smell and without consciously noticing that there was any smell. <laughs> Even how clever you are depends on what others think. Rosenthal gave children IQ tests and told their teacher the results. Some children identified as gifted were no better than average. Then, eight months later, the children were retested, and 80% of those labelled as gifted had improved over 10 points, and 20% had gained over 30 points. So it seems most of what we do is decided by our unconscious mind and then justified logically by the logical parts of our brain. Yeah, Nobel Prize winning Daniel Kahneman in his book Thinking Fast and Slow also describes some surprising aspects of our and our clients' thinking. The book explains that we have two ways of thinking, a quick way that we use all the time, what we'd call the primitive brain, and a slower, more reflective way. And we're often too lazy to use it. So that's what we call our intellectual brain. And did you know that being brave was tiring? According to Kahneman, stifling an emotional reaction reduces your physical strength. And this he calls ego depletion. And ego depleted people are more likely to give up tasks such as dieting. Yeah, Kahneman went on to suggest that there's a confirmation bias in that people look for evidence to confirm their ideas rather than challenge them. And he comes up with a rule. What you see is all there is. That explains so many bad decisions. Basically, people take into consideration what they know about a situation and ignore what they don't know. So even though they may know that there are things they don't know, they don't let that affect their choice. And I just wanted to mention Orr's Law, Dr. Leonard Orr, the founder of the American rebirthing movement. And he suggested that within everyone are two people. One is a thinker, the other a prover. The thinker, which roughly corresponds to your conscious mind, is that part of you that thinks up ideas and generates possibilities. 
the prover, which approximates to your unconscious mind, has the job of collecting just the right facts to support whatever it is you believe. Orr's law states that whatever the thinker thinks, the prover proves. Now, how can you tell how successful a politician is going to be? Do you look at their voting record? No. Apparently, you look at how strong and trustworthy they look. Yeah, Kahneman suggests that our fast brain likes to see the world as a well-ordered place. He suggests the halo effect to explain how our fast brain will ascribe attributes to someone just because they exhibit other attributes. For example, just because we think a baseball pitcher is handsome and athletic, we will rate him as being better at throwing a ball. Think about how that might apply to people or your clients. The suggestion is that your brain builds a coherent narrative about people and events from very limited information. We think we understand past events and that the outcomes were never in doubt. And therefore, we should be able to predict what will happen in the future. Kahneman calls this the illusion of understanding. All right. The second illusion that Kahneman describes is the illusion of validity. He describes how he and a small group of others looked at recruits and decided who would make the best officers. They were confident that they were right based on their observations. And even when evidence from further training of the soldiers showed that the group's decisions were wrong, they continued to make the same choices. And as he goes on to show that the same could be said of stockbrokers picking stocks. So why does the illusion continue? The answer seems to be that powerful professional cultures maintain the illusion. In fact, most research shows experts are no better at predicting the future than anyone else would be. It seems that in an unpredictable environment, no one can predict the future. Remember that the next time you really think you know what a client will do next. Oh, yes. But, you know, there are times when you just have a feeling that something is right or that it will work. You just know what's going to happen and what your client needs to do to accommodate that. Kahneman has a chapter on intuition and formulas. His example is the future price of wine. Experts make a guess about the quality of Bordeaux wine and predict how much it will sell for. The accuracy was tested against an algorithm using weather features, like average temperature during the summer growing season, the amount of rain at harvest time, and the total rainfall during the previous winter. And the algorithm was a better predictor of wine prices. We learned that when choosing people to work with, perhaps in a new clinic you're setting up, you need to choose up to six characteristics that are important. Ask questions and score potential colleagues for each trait. That way, you'll get the best team. Don't select people just because you like them. Mm. And there are times when you can accept expert judgments, and that seems to be when a system is fairly predictable and when circumstances are similar to previous events. Effectively, this is when the expert remembers a similar event and uses that to base decisions on. This shows the value of feedback and practice. And this is where we are most often when working with clients. We have seen something similar, and so we can use that to predict what will happen next. Yeah, Kellerman states that when we make a decision, we focus on what we know and neglect what we don't know. 
which makes us overly confident in our beliefs. So let's all take that as a warning ourselves, but also pass it on to our clients. So it seems from both of these books, there are plenty of documented examples of how most people make the mistakes and get themselves into difficulties. And they all seem to be a consequence of using our primitive brain too much and not engaging our intellectual brain enough. But if you want to catch a ball, stay in your primitive brain. If you want to vote for an MP, use your intellectual brain. Well, that's about it from us. Next time we will be looking at the brain in trance. So it's goodbye from me, Cathy Eland. And it's goodbye from me, Trevor Eddles. We'll see you next time. Yeah, bye. Bye.